This is Fundraising Radio, and today's a guest speaker. We have Gregory Lim, CEO and co-founder at Versosa, that raised seven hundred thousand in their pre-seed round, and are currently in the process of raising their seed round of one million. And in this episode, we'll talk about the difference between raising then uh, their pre-seed round was about two years ago, and raising now in two thousand twenty. You know because of the coronavirus, it's going to be pretty interesting to hear how this fundraising process goes now versus two years ago. So Gregory, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Persosa. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me, Constantine. I'm a big fan of fundraising radio, so I appreciate the opportunity to uh, chat with you and your audience. Um, in terms of my company today, Persosa, we are connecting web and television experiences to create connected experiences for end consumers. Uh, so the example there is perhaps you're watching a home improvement show on television. Uh, let's say the Property Brothers. At the end of the show, the Property Brothers remodel a backyard and install a Weber grill. Well, today, if you then go to Weber.com, you receive a disconnected product experience that does not tie back to, to television. Uh, and with Persosa, what we do is we can tell that what you've watched on television. Now, when you go to Weber.com, we'll give you a co-branded experience, perhaps featuring the host from the show, a testimonial, image or videos from the exact show and episode that you watched to really deliver a world-class customer experience and to make those marketing dollars work a little bit harder. So that's where we're at today. Um, prior to this, uh, I've been a finance uh, person by training. First American title in Motorola, uh, but probably most interesting to this audience is my last kind of startup slash corporate gig was over at LifeLock, where uh, we helped grow the company from you know $25 million up to a $2.3 billion exit to Symantec. So really helped nice. define, yeah, really helped define a whole category. And I was very fortunate there having to you know, run the finance organization through a couple of rounds of funding and the IPO, and then eventually uh, spending the last part of my career there over as the uh, CMO as well. So a really kind of interesting startup journey on, on that side mm -hmm. of things as well before Pesosa. That's true. And that's a decent background. I love it. So let's start by talking about deep tech. So Persosa sounds very much like a complicated product, not something you can build in one month with one coder. So how do you approach the fundraising? Did you raise your pre-seed rounds of 700,000 before you actually build something, before you prove the concept, or do you really have something to show to the investors? How did, how did that work? Yeah, well, it's actually a really funny story. And we're very, I was very fortunate in this, Constantine, that um, I was actually working, after I left LifeLock, I was running all of the digital marketing for a company I had invested in called Spiritual Gangster, which is a yoga clothing company. Uh, they were about to expand their menswear line. And I said, listen, there is no way we can take all of this male traffic and send it to this female-focused web experience. There's got to be a solution out there that changes content for your website. Um, I went out, tried to find something. Uh, there are a couple of enterprise solutions, but you know, it's half a million dollars, 10 engineers in a 12-month deployment cycle. And there really wasn't anything for kind of the sub-enterprise or mid-market uh, marketing departments at that point in time. So uh, that week out of the blue, my current co-founder, Kirk Morales, called me. Hadn't spoken to him in a couple of years. Um, 
he and I grab lunch that week and he literally starts out by saying, hey, I've built this platform and it dynamically changes content. So it was rather serendipitous that I was looking for the solution and then an old friend called me out of the blue and candidly he'd already built version one of the platform. So I think my scenario is probably a little bit different than uh, some of the audience members here that it wasn't, uh, it was a bit, you know, Kirk was building this platform. I had this need and we just kind of, you know, randomly connected at the right time. So uh, I was lucky more than anything to be completely honest about the timing of it. And that's really what got us kicked off, you know, coming up to two and a half years ago now. Mm-hmm. Got it. That's, I mean, startup world is all about luck. The more successful founders I interview here, the more I hear, I just got lucky. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's normal. It's completely normal. Uh, I, I wish I could say it was brains and strategy and good planning, <laughs> but uh, that's really not the case. No one says that. No one ever. I mean, I've heard a couple of times people were saying that, but probably they were lying. So um, <laughs> let's not focus on that as much. But Second, I want to discuss the difference between raising money then and raising money now. So what can you say about that right now? Most VCs don't invest in new startups. They focus on making sure that their portfolio companies stay alive and don't really source any new deals. What, how do you manage to, to, to act, to work in this environment? Yeah, so a few different things. I think back then, uh, you know, April of 2018 is when we closed the round. Um, you know, we could talk to a broader range of people, uh, just, you know, investors who were liquid, they were looking to invest in some, a, a good opportunity, something they were interested in and could hopefully, hopefully add strategic value to. What we've found in this uh, current scenario with COVID is kind of two things. One, uh, find a story, if it's obviously it has to be true, but use something like COVID to your strength, right? Like, there's a, there's a shift in behaviors. Uh, for us, it's a shift in media consumption, right? And maybe a shift in uh, people are obviously staying home and working remotely. What's that story that tells an investor that coming out of this, you're going to be one of the companies that actually grows and benefits because of the changes versus a company that's going to be negatively impacted? And so, again, foundationally, it has to be a true story, but really find that message to alleviate their concerns and let them know that you're really a good bet and a good company to invest in. So that would be my first piece of advice, find kind of alignment um, between the negatives and really turn that into a positive story about why you're gonna grow and scale. Um, the second thing I've found out is we've been a lot more focused on who we're talking to. Um, one of the things that we have not done well in full disclosure is, um, I feel like fundraising is a little bit like dating. Someone will say, hey, there's a VC or an investor you should talk to over here. I had a really good experience or call with them. Or perhaps you're going to some networking event run by Silicon Valley, or in our case, we're in Arizona, the Arizona Commerce Authority. And you go to all of these events, but it's a little bit haphazard, so to speak, because you don't know who you're going to be talking to, who's there. Um, where we've made a lot more traction lately is being hyper-focused on VC companies who have experience uh, in the media and entertainment space or have had successful exits mm -hmm. with companies that have similar or parallel stories to ours. That way, what we're doing, we're not having to sell them on the concept. We're just having to sell them on the fact that they believe in the opportunity and we're the people to execute. Whereas when we go to a broader audience of investors, you have to start at square one saying, this is how digital marketing works. This is why we think it's a good opportunity. 
and then kind of start educating them from kind of from square one, so to speak. That when you're talking to investors who are experienced in your industry, that had successes with similar or adjacent stories, then all of a sudden you're not kind of starting at square one, you're already starting at the 50 yard line and then the level and depth of conversation that you have with them is dramatically improved. So that was a long way of saying we have been a lot more targeted and specific in terms of who we're going after and who we're asking for uh, introductions to from our network. Mm -hmm. Right, that was a pretty long but a decent answer, I must say that. And my next question is, how do you find those investors? So how do you source basically those investors? Do you use Crunchbase and filter out the investors who invested in uh, media or who work in media? Or do you just Google or is it through your network solely? How, how do you do this? You know, well, like anything, warm introductions are always best, right? We're fortunate that we have a very strong group of advisors. So first off, we're leveraging our direct and personal networks of our employees and our advisors. Uh, that's where we're always starting. Um, but then beyond that, uh, we're working through other organizations that perhaps can give us introductions like the Arizona Commerce Authority, which has done a phenomenal job here in Arizona, uh, through some of the other networks uh, that we're talking to, like plug and play us out of Silicon Valley. So, uh, you know, we are doing a, a few pieces of cold reach out here or there, but candidly, um, anytime that you can get a warm introduction, you're going to be uh, much, much better off in those conversations. Mm -hmm. Right, right. That's a good point. So your advice to early founders uh, would be get some advisors first on the board to make sure that you increase your network this way, or should they just go after investors right away? Where should they start, basically? That's the question. You know, I, I would absolutely parallel track those, um, right? You don't want to, especially when you're starting out, I don't think you want to build an advisory board right away. Well, what I mean by that is you don't want to, you want to take time to get to know the advisors, right? They may have, they're going to have a very strong influence on your company. You want to rely on them. I don't think that's a process that happens overnight. And so, one, you don't have the luxury of waiting for that advisory board to to fill out uh, to start doing your fundraising. So I think you absolutely start doing your fundraising immediately, um, but in parallel, definitely track those uh, advisor relationships and start building those as well, because you want people who are invested in your success and have relate existing relationships in your industry uh, with strategic investors and, you know, just, and other VCs as well where possible. Mm -hmm. Right, 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 right. So you mentioned that you met, you met your co-founder basically by somewhat an accident and it was just good timing and all that but how do you build the rest of your team did you start building the team after you got your pre-seed round or before you got your pre-seed round uh we started building it uh after our pre-seed round so we had some money in the bank uh we were very fortunate that we our two current employees we actually knew both of them uh on both a personal and professional level which really helped um, but what we've seen, especially here in the Arizona community, you know, we belong to the Arizona, uh, we won the Arizona Innovation Challenge, so we're part of the Arizona Commerce Authorities Program. Uh, we were fortunate to be accepted into Startup Arizona. Uh, we work in a co-working space uh, called Galvanize that I know has a number of locations around the country. And so what we've found is there's nothing better than a warm introduction. So we always go out to our networks and say, here's who we're looking for, here's the role, as a reminder, here's the stage of our company where we're at, and then look for introductions uh, from our networks. 
that's always been the most successful way for us to kind of round out our team and, and get good recommendations. Mm -hmm. Great, great, great. That's a great advice. That's true. Network search is always good. But what would you recommend to people who, for example, let's say that you did not know those two people who are working for you right now, what would you do? So you're going out to your network, but parallel to that, what's what would you recommend? Should they reach out to people on LinkedIn? Should they try to uh, connect to new advisors and while talking to advisors, they should ask them for introductions to potential employees? Yes, I mean, all of those. I think uh, definitely reach out to your advisors. I also think um, specifically targeting um, uh, potential employees who have done this before, right? Whether it's, again, doesn't have to be your exact business, but are familiar with the space, are in an adjacent business, have network and network and context in your uh, vertical that you're going after. I think proactively approaching people is always a really great way to uh, do it. One, because you know what they bring to the table with them, just based upon their current job role and title. Um, but also, candidly, people want to feel appreciated. The fact that you directly reached out for a role versus them responding to it, um, I think that kind of changes the tone of the conversation in terms of, wow, they're, they're really excited. Someone thought I could bring something to their business. Even what I found out is even if they're not ready to leave that role and come over to your business, they appreciate the fact that you've done your homework and will often introduce someone else to you and or open up their network as long as it's not a conflict of interest with their existing business. Mm -hmm. Right, 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 right. That's a good point. So what do you see? Let's let's get back to this pre-seed round versus current seed round. What do you think were the major mistakes you made in the pre-seed round? Was it probably lack of focus so right now you're heavily focused on investors who invested in media and media related and media marketing and back then as i understood you basically shot every every investor you could find who who think was the right fit do you think that was a mistake or was there something else you would fix in your previous fundraising process uh you know how much time do we have uh we, we've made we've made all the mistakes <laughs> um i would say some of the big ones, like, I mean, honestly, before we were able to close our round, um, at that time, my uh, my co-founder, Kirk Morales, who's now our CTO, he was actually the CEO, and he was running point on this. He probably had over well over, actually, I know he had well over 100 conversations before we had anyone even bite. So one, I think, just be persistent. Um, as an entrepreneur, you have to realize if what you're doing is obvious, it wouldn't be an opportunity. And so you have to talk to people and not everyone's going to get it, right? So a lot of it is just brute force and belief in what you're doing uh, as a real opportunity, right? So one, obviously just the, the grind, you have to stay on top of it. Um, I would say two, uh, our first round, our messaging was definitely off. It was all about us. And the reality is put yourself in the investor's shoes. It has to be all about them. Now, what I mean by that is you still obviously need to articulate your business, what you do, but we're, and this is, this is my experience having been on the other side of the table as an investor as well. I would tell you that the majority of slide decks and presentations um, that I see don't talk about what that potential exit is for the investor. And don't assume that they understand how they're gonna get their money out what that exit opportunity looks like, what that exit multiple could be. It's really your job as that invest, uh, as that entrepreneur and founder when you're talking to them 
to educate them not only about the opportunity, but how when they put a dollar into your business, they're going to get 5, 10, 20 back out in a reasonable set of timeframes. And so we completely missed any of that language or conversation. It was all about us and how wonderful our company was and how we were going to change the world, which is a piece of it, but it's only one piece of the larger conversation. And so really being able to reposition it around um, not only the company, but what it means for the investors in terms of the next stages, potential uh, liquidity and exit events, it really helps us uh, in that conversation because it lets them know that we're aligned uh, around, uh, around their vision of making money. Mm -hmm. Right. So this year I probably took to like uh, 200, maybe 300 investors. And I would say that hundred of them says that there should be no exit strategy on the pitch deck and the other hundred says that there should be an exit strategy on the pitch deck. So <laughs> I cannot make up my mind on this topic, but probably just, you know, talk about it a little bit at least at that show. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, 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 I genuinely believe, and again, this is my view being on both sides of this conversation, is it's somewhere in the middle. You want to have an exit strategy in the fact that as an entrepreneur, an investor wants to know what the next stage looks like, what a potential exit looks like. You're not necessarily committing to it. Um, but on the other side of it, you don't build a business for an exit, right? And that's always the clarifying point that when investors ask me, what's your exit? And I say, listen, if you build a company, and we experienced this at LifeLock, if you build a company for an exit, you start making bad short-term decisions that keep moving that finish line and that exit further and further away, and you never, ever get there. So what I tell investors is, first off, we're building a self-sustaining company that is scalable and can self-support that gives us options when those exit opportunities present ourselves. So we want to be thoughtful about who those potential partnerships or exits or liquidity events, who they could be or what they could be so that we can plant those seeds now and start those conversations. But ultimately, the best thing that we can do is focus on building a sustainable and scalable company because that will give us the most options when those opportunities arise. And that's kind of how I split the middle between those you know, two different viewpoints. That's actually a very good point. So that's that's a value. That's a valid argument right here. So uh, I actually have a very frequently asked question from uh, my listeners, and it's how do I reach out to investors? So of course, the general answer is try to get the warm intro. But if there is no good way or no, at least you know, fast way to get the warm introduction to an investor, what do you usually use? Do you use LinkedIn? Do you try to figure out what their email is? What is that that you're using to reach out to them? Uh I always like email, but if you can do LinkedIn and email, I would do all of it. I would say the biggest thing, though, is take the time. Do not spam them with, you know, add them to a list of 50 other investors. Take the time to do an, a personalized email, right? Why, why are you reaching out to them? You saw that, hey, I saw that you invest in XYZ company. We have a similar and parallel story and think it would be a good fit. You know, reach it that way. Um, that's kind of one thing, personalize it, let them know that you've done their, their homework, you're not going to waste their time. Um, it's almost like a sales call too. If you're asking, mm -hmm. make sure that you have a clear ask at the end of it. It's like, hey, I know you're really busy. I would just love to have 15 minutes of your time to share this and get your thoughts. Um, another opportunity too is, it depends who you're talking to, but the VC's job is to find 
good opportunities for their LPs and their investors. So don't be afraid to reach out to these VCs. Their job is to take your call, to learn about your business and to see if it's a good fit. So, I mean, the, the VCs, that's their job. They will respond. It's kind of the nature of their business. But if they're individual angels or other people in the industry, definitely reach out to them, personalize it. And then another way to approach it too is you don't even know if it's a good fit right off the bat. Just ask them as a startup. Just say, hey, listen, I'm a startup. You're in my industry. I imagine someone gave you an opportunity earlier in your career. I'd love just to have 15 to 30 minutes of your time to share what we're doing and get your thoughts on it, just to start a conversation. That way, their barriers are down. You're not trying to sell them anything. And best case, they get really excited and it opens up an opportunity. Worst case, you've expanded your network in a natural way and got some really good advice and feedback on your business. So I love that positioning because it's not, yes, I'm in, no, I'm not. You're actually starting it around someone you know, giving you 30 minutes of their time to have some a good conversation about your business. Mm -hmm. That's great advice, but I think you've underestimated the worst case scenario. It's not <laughs> an expansion of your personal network. I think the worst case scenario here is no response whatsoever, and you just spend 20 minutes researching the investor. But you know, that's natural, so get get ready for that stuff. Um, but now let's talk about your angel investing experience. So you said that prior to Persoza, you've done some angel investments. Uh, do you mm -hmm. still do that while working on Persoza, or as in the past? Um, well, I still do it in, in that I have some active investments. I'm not actively investing currently. Um, I'm, uh, I'm doubling down on myself and my business, which is uh, where I have the most control and mm -hmm. uh, over, oversight. But yes, I still do have a number of uh, active invest uh, investments um, from kind of pre-Pesosa as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So as an angel investor, I imagine that you have plenty of angel friends. Uh, what do you see is the common mood in this pandemic? Are they investing actively? Are they trying to find something that probably is resistible to some stuff like coronavirus or to crisis in general, what are they doing? What do you see there? You know, it's, honestly, it's, it's a mixed bag. I think some people have been, you know, two months ago, everything was kind of frozen. I, I feel like some people are still really, really concerned and I see others kind of really loosening up. What I would say is from an angel and then even definitely beyond the angel when you start going to the VC realm, is there is pent up demand. The whole purpose of a VC fund is to find profitable investments and right they locked down in they locked down in march they locked down in april they locked down in may they're starting to loosen up now so now is actually a really good time to have those conversations not only with angels but specifically vcs if you're a little bit further along in that conversation because there is pent-up demand they have lp money that they are required to invest and they haven't been doing anything for three or four months so my belief is kind of starting now through about september i think there's a really good window I think things will slow down and tighten up a little bit approaching the election to get a read what happens there and then open up. But currently I do genuinely believe that there's some pent up demand that's starting to release uh, more specifically on the VC side than the angel side. I would say angels are tending to be a little bit more, a uh, little bit more conservative still. We are nearly on the same page. I believe that angels are actually less conservative at this point, <laughs> but you're definitely right. Yeah, VCs have to deploy their money and they have not done so for quite some time. So be ready for some uh, capital infusion there. 
But we mentioned, I mean, we talked a little bit about the major mistakes that you've made in your pre-seed round. And now let's talk from your perspective as an investor. What do you think are the major mistakes that founders do in general uh, while, while raising money? Um, like I said, the, the first one is not really, I think one, not really focusing on how I get my money out. So really being able to artic articulate that story to the investors is important. Um, I also see a lot of companies focus on building out the MVP product. I'm a huge fan of saving some of your budget and getting some early reads on market demand, right? Whether it's you know, cost of customer acquisition, proving out a couple of different use cases. Don't put all of your eggs in one basket around product. I would rather see a product 80% done and some early indicators on marketing and maybe kind of one or two people lined up with LOIs on use cases. Um, that's a lot more interesting than a product that's 100% done. And so really being thoughtful, kind of what's that right balance uh, in those early days between kind of full product development and you know, getting a, a couple of in-market proof points and you know, proving out your acquisition. Uh, a really good balance there always, always helps. Um, and then the other thing is, don't be afraid to chase me down, right? As an investor, everyone gets really busy. You've got, it's, it's, as an entrepreneur, raising money is your number one priority, but it's that investor's number six priority probably candidly their number 15th priority between their business, family, other investments, et cetera. So don't <laughs> feel bad about staying on top of them. Um, right. Obviously in a polite way saying, hey, I know you're really busy. When's it appropriate for me to follow up? But make sure you stay on top of them. That's your job as an entrepreneur. Your job is to sell them the opportunity to invest in your company. And so you have to treat it like a sales process. Stay on top of them, follow up. Um, if you're going to become a pain, they'll let you know. Um, but in yeah. the absence of that, it's your job to close them and get that money in the bank account so that you can focus back on your business. That's true. Follow up is the key, I would say. I mean, even in my case, people who I desperately want to have on my podcast, I have to reach out to them, I know, four or five times on both LinkedIn, email, and sometimes they just keep ignoring me yeah but sometimes i bring people like ceo of republic so it's completely worth it people take your time to do that that's great advice gregory and here we're moving on to probably the last question of today's episode which is a call to action what's that one specific thing that you would like the listeners to do as soon as the episode is over um you know, feel reach out feel free to reach out to me on linkedin um i'm gonna make myself available to your uh, audience, feel free to email me directly at greg at persosa, P-E-R-S-O-S-A.com. Uh, always happy to help other entrepreneurs um, uh, on their journey, having, you know, going through it myself right now. So make myself available. And then I did want to mention one resource that I really like, uh, just to stay on top of industry trends. Uh, there's an email by a gentleman named Ben Thompson, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, and his email is called uh, Strategery. Um, so it's a play on strategy and uh, mm -hmm. but strategies are real good daily email, um, in-depth market trends, what's happening in different industries, but they always go deep and it's based upon a lot of primary research. So it's a really good way to digest good quality information and stay ahead of industry trends to, regardless of uh, what industry you're in. Awesome. That's really interesting. I love daily emails. I know, uh, I mean, just making sure you understand where the industry is going. I personally read, I think, only Crunchbase Daily, but I will definitely check out that 
the email that you just mentioned. And I will certainly include your LinkedIn, your email, and the last email that you mentioned in the description of this episode. So if you want to reach out to Gregory, Gregory, sorry, or check out that email, uh, it's in the description. So this point we'll wrap it up thanks a lot gregory for coming up and for sharing your experience i think that was a really fun episode thanks a lot for that thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it